If you have ever had to write a resume in order to apply for a job, then you know that in that process, you're trying to put your best foot forward. You're wanting to make an impression. You're trying to highlight the positive points about yourself and to kind of downplay those that are not so positive. You don't want to be dishonest when you write a resume, but you do want to put yourself in the very best possible light. Well, sometimes, despite their best efforts, some people reveal more about themselves than they intend to when they write their own resumes. And I have some examples of that this morning. There was one resume written by a lady who says, I seek challenges that test my mind and body since the two are usually inseparable. Maybe not as much as she thinks. Another says, I have an excellent memory, strong math aptitude, an excellent memory, effective management skills, and very good at math. Another person who worked as an intermediary between corporations says, I worked as a corporate lesion instead of liaison. Under experience, another person put, I watered, groomed, and fed the family dog for years. This one said, I graduated in the top 66% of my class. (laughs) One lady said, I have a bachelorette's degree in computers. (laughs) And my favorite one is this, none of my references really like me, so please don't believe what they say. (laughs) When you write your own resume, you want to impress the people who read it. You want your good points to be emphasized. You want your bad points to be left in the background. And there's nothing inherently wrong in that because when you are preparing a resume and applying for a job, you want to see if your personality, your skill set, your experience can be a fit for the position that you are interested in. The problem comes whenever you start thinking about yourself in terms of a well-crafted resume. When you stop seeing yourself as you really are, and you start seeing yourself only as you want other people to see you. Well, what if God were to write your resume? And what if he were to tell you on a resume the truth about yourself? That's a dawning thought, right? It's dawning because we know he's the God of truth. He cannot lie. And he's omniscient. So he knows everything. There's nothing about you that is hidden from him. So what would he say about you if he were to write your resume? Well, we don't have to speculate about that because, in effect, God has done exactly that in the text that we come to today in Romans chapter 3. God has actually written in this chapter truth about every one of us in this room and every person that you know. The passage is Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. If you're using one of the Bibles that's provided for you, you'll see that it begins on page 940. I invite you to open up Scripture and get these verses in front of you because as I read them and then kind of walk us through them, I want you to actually look and see what it is God has to say to us this morning. It would be disastrous to simply skate over this portion of God's word superficially because, as I've indicated, what God says in our text 
really is his assessment of the natural condition of every human being. When you write your resume, you intend to make a positive impression on other people. When God writes your resume, he intends to make a sobering impression on you. So follow along carefully as I read aloud from our text. Romans chapter 3, I'm going to start in verse 9 and read all the way down through verse 20. Paul writes, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace, they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Sin enslaves the whole human race, leaving us hopeless and helpless before God. That's the point that the Apostle Paul makes in this passage that I've just read. He is wrapping up an argument that he began in the middle of chapter 1. In chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, he announces the theme of this letter when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe, the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Just as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And immediately after announcing that gracious salvation, Paul begins to argue that everybody needs it. The whole world needs to be saved by God's grace because the whole world is in sin and therefore under God's condemnation. In verse 18 of chapter 1, he starts the argument that I just read the conclusion to for our text in chapter 3. He says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What Paul says is true not just for the overtly ungodly people in the world. It's also true for religious people in the world. It is true for those who think themselves good and look down upon others who are obviously bad. In other words, what Paul says here about sin and its universality applies not just to the younger brother types in Jesus' parable of the prodigal, but also to the older brothers who say, I've always done what I'm supposed to do. As Paul wraps up his case for the universality of sin and God's wrath against sinners, in the text before us, he cites, he refers to several Old Testament scriptures. A couple of them he quotes, 
Most of them he paraphrases, but he brings them all together in order to buttress his case. You see this in verses 10 through 18, and in most of our English Bibles, those verses are formatted in such a way that you recognize that they come from somewhere else. In fact, you probably have footnotes in your Bible that cites Paul's references to various Psalms, to some Proverbs, to the prophet Isaiah, and also to the book of Ecclesiastes. He uses these Old Testament passages because he wants to make sure that his fellow Jews, he counts himself one of them, and he wants to make sure that they understand that their own scriptures, the books that they appeal to, support his claim that sin is universal, and therefore God's judgment against sinners is universal. It's Jews as well as Gentiles who are enslaved to sin. So the conclusion that he is drawing is that everybody, religious people, irreligious people, all are enslaved by sin and are therefore helpless and hopeless before God in and of themselves. Now I want to look at the passage that I read to you under four headings. We see Paul breaking it down in a way that I think we can recognize four specific points. In verses 9 through the most of verse 12, he talks about our condition. And then right at the end of verse 12, down through verse 17, we'll see what he says about our conduct. And in verse 18, then, he gives us a very simple, powerful explanation for our conduct and our condition. We see the cause of it. And then in verses 19 and 20, he sums it all up by outlining the consequence of all of this. So let's look at our condition, starting here in verse 9. Our condition is that we are enslaved. Do you see that? Verse 9, both Jews and Greeks are under sin, under sin. Let that little phrase, under sin, just resonate in your mind for a moment. What does Paul mean by this? He means under the power of sin enslaved by sin. Not, as he will contrast later in this letter, under grace, which is what happens to you when you turn from sin and trust Jesus Christ, but by nature and before you come to Christ, you are enslaved to sin. This is the explanation that he gives for all the wrong things that people do. I mean, just consider some of the things Paul's already mentioned up to this point in Romans that people do, people are guilty of. In verse 18, I cited a moment ago, why do people suppress the truth in their unrighteousness in verse 18 of chapter 1? Why do they do that? Because they're under sin. Why in verse 32 of chapter 1 do people not only do evil, but approve of the evil that other people do? Why? Why do we have legislators in New York applauding and cheering a bill that is passed that says you can kill your baby up to the point of his birth because they're under sin. In chapter 2, verse 1, why do religious people look down on those that are not religious and condemn the things they do while they themselves do the same things? Where's that kind of hypocrisy come from? They're under sin. 
Sin is a universal condition. The enslavement of sin is something that every person must come to terms with. Do you notice the universal language that Paul uses in this passage? Nine times in verses 9 through 12, he uses language that keeps us from excluding anybody. Just look at these verses. Look at verse 9. All, he says, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. Verse 10, none, not one. You see how exclusive he's being? Nobody's excluded. Verse 11, no one. Again, no one. Verse 12, all, together, no one, not even one. Nobody's excluded. Everybody is included in what he's talking about. You, me, everybody. I'm not the exception. You're not the exception. What's being said here in this passage is true of everybody you know, including yourself. It's a pitiful, desperate condition that he describes. We're not righteous. Nobody is, verse 10 says. To be righteous is to be blameless with respect to God and with respect to other people. That is, you you always do what you ought to do with relation to God and in relation to others. What is it that we're called to do? Well, God defines for us what is right and good in his law. And how does Jesus summarize it? Here's what we must do. Here's what righteousness is. It's loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And loving your neighbor as yourself. All the time. Without fail. That's righteousness. Nobody has it. We're without understanding, verse 11 says. No one understands. They do not understand or apprehend spiritual truth. They don't understand or apprehend the truth about God. They make up things about God in their mind to satisfy them so that they can sleep at night. They don't understand the truth about themselves. They kid themselves. They don't understand human nature. And so they come up with all kinds of excuses for why they are the way they are. They don't understand the way of real joy, real happiness. And so whenever the abundant life Jesus talks about that he came to give is described for them, it sounds dull. It sounds boring. And what the world offers sounds so enticing and exciting in pursuit of joy. They don't understand about eternity, their eternal destiny. They don't want to know the truth about this. They don't want to believe that it's appointed unto every person once to die and then the judgment. They don't want to talk about death. Certainly not their own death. Nobody understands. Verse 11 goes on. Nobody seeks for God. They don't desire Him. In sin, by nature, People don't want to know this true God. They don't want to see him as he is. They don't want to enjoy him. They don't want to glorify him. Verse 12, they've all turned aside. Aside from what? From God. 
They've gone out of the way that God has prescribed for his image bearers to live in, to walk according to. Just as Isaiah 53, 6 6 says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned each one to his own way. Paul says that's true universally. For Jew, for Greek, for religious, irreligious, everybody's turned aside. Look at verse 12. He says they've become worthless, worthless, spiritually worthless. Is this really what God thinks about us by nature? This word worthless was used to describe spoiled milk. If you've ever poured yourself a glass of milk thinking you're about to get refreshed, only to discover it's rancid, you spit it out. Paul says, this is what's true of the human race because of sin. It's a rather bleak description of our condition, isn't it? Is this the way that you would describe yourself? If you had to put together a resume according to what the Bible says about you? Is the way that you think of other people that you know? Your own condition by nature, their condition by nature. It's not the way that we're taught to think about ourselves today. You know, in my generation, it was, I'm okay, you're okay. In the current generation, it's you be you. you know. But it's the same point, right? That fundamentally, we're all okay. Uh, there's nothing really wrong. We're just kind of unique people. We do our own thing. But hey, that's the way that we're supposed to live. Everybody's opinion is equally valid. Everybody should be affirmed, never challenged. But that's not what God says is the truth about the natural condition of every man, woman, and child outside of his grace, apart from his salvation in Christ. In sin, we are enslaved. We are under sin. It's left us fundamentally flawed. And when God writes your resume, he doesn't omit that part. He puts it on the front page. Because he wants you and me to know the truth of where we came from. What's true of us by nature. Our condition is enslaved. But notice secondly, our conduct, it's bad. It's bad. It's the opposite of good. You see at the very end of verse 12, no one does good, not even one. What does it mean to do good? Good according to whose standard? According to God's standard. God's the one who determines what is good. He reveals that to us in his word. We are to do what he commands. And not just do it externally. We're to do it for the right reasons. With the right motives. Our motives are always to be pure, godly, God-oriented motives. And yet... Scripture says nobody does that. Our text elaborates that point, first of all, by talking about our speech and then talking about our actions. Look at verses 13 and 14 and how our speech is described. It says their throat is an open grave. What a word picture. He says for people in sin, people who are not Christians, what comes out of their mouth is like, 
opening up a grave a couple of weeks after a dead body has been buried there with all of the putrid smell and odor that arises from it. And this is what Jesus said as well, that it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. You want to know where those cutting words come from? Where those illicit conversations arise? It's from within. It's because we are under sin. Their throat's an open grave. They use their tongues, he goes on to write, to deceive. In other words, they flatter, they lie. They speak smoothly to the person that they meet face to face. But as soon as she walks away, they make cutting, snide remarks about her. You ever witness that? You ever had that experience? You ever done that? The scripture says that this is because we're under sin. Deceptive speech. Designed to mislead, to give a wrong impression. To communicate something that's not true. It's because we're enslaved to sin. The venom of asps, he goes on, quoting another passage, is under their, t- under their lips. It's another graphic word picture here. Though they can speak words as smooth as butter, they can also poison people with character assassinations. So that reputations are ruined. Verse 14. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Not that unbelievers are always and only saying curse words and bitter accusations. It's not that, but rather he's saying it's in their hearts. In the unguarded moments of their lives, it erupts. We see this, don't we? Still, as Christians even, the sin that remains in us. Somebody says something or does something or you find something that's gone the wrong way and it frustrates you and it angers you. And there's this eruption that too often makes its way across our lips, but even if we are able to restrain the words, it's still in our hearts. Why? Sin. Now, I know that this type of teaching about what we all are really like in sin outside of Christ is offensive. I realize that. And many people in our day simply will not abide this kind of teaching. They much prefer teachers who will tell them how good they are, how well they are doing to make it on their own, and and even language like this, oh, God's so proud of you for trying. But listen, anybody who would deceive you about what God really says is not your friend. And if you buy what they sell Your soul will be damaged, and it may well be lost forever and destroyed. It's not just our speech, however, that's been corrupted by sin, but in verses 15, 16, and 17, Paul brings together passages from the Old Old Testament in order to speak about our actions. Listen to these verses. Let me just read them again. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they've not known. Kent Hughes calls this a condensed history of the world. 
I mean, it's, it's like you're, you're following the path of a moral tornado and you're getting a first-hand eyewitness description. Violence is natural to the human race. From the day that Cain murdered his brother Abel to the present, every generation of mankind has been marked by murder and violence. The history of humanity in every culture is the history of warfare, the history of bloodshed. Will Durant, the historian in 1968, wrote a book called Lessons from History. And he made this observation. In the last 3,421 years of recorded history, only 268 have seen no war. Less than 10%. Do you see what Paul's doing here? He's bringing together all of these Old Testament passages in order to hold a mirror up to our faces so that we will get a spiritual assessment of the way that we really are by nature. What a mirror this is. This will not allow us to walk away and say, well, you know, people really aren't all that bad. Things really aren't that difficult in the world. If you take seriously what this passage says, then you're going to have to come to terms with the reality that sin has ravaged the human race. We're not the way we're supposed to be. The world is not the way it's supposed to be. But If we see this, we will come to understand not just the world, but also history. Also, our friends, our family members, those we work with, those we care about. And we'll come to understand ourselves as well. I agree with Steve Lawson when he describes the Bible by saying, I've read other books, but this book reads me. Haven't you felt that way? Looking into God's word before, and it's as if he is writing all about you. Well, he does that, beloved, in order to help us know the truth. To help us to see what we are and will remain apart from his grace and to call us to embrace his grace, to turn from sin that we might be remade in Jesus Christ. If you have not seen yourself the way these verses talk about you, then friend, my hope, my prayer has been, my prayer as I speak right now, is that you will come to honestly confess what is true that God says about you. My desire is for you to come to the reality that it doesn't matter what other people say about you. It really doesn't matter what you say about yourself. What really matters is what God says about you. What God sees to be true. If you've never come to see this, you've never come to confess this to be true about yourself, then you cannot be a Christian. You can't be a Christian if you deny what the Bible says about you in sin. Because Jesus said it's not healthy people that need a doctor. He said, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And if you know yourself to be a sinner, then you can say with God what you say about me is true. I believe it. I feel it. 
I need Christ. Save me. And he'll save you. He'll make you a new person. He'll deliver you from the bondage of sin. Well, you're under sin. And as a result, your condition is enslaved. Your conduct is bad. In verse 18, Paul goes very simply to the point of why this is true to state the reason for all of this. The cause of our enslaved condition and bad conduct is disregard of God. Look at verse 18, how simple it is. It's a quote from Psalm 31. There's no fear of God before their eyes. This is the root of all of it. People do not acknowledge God. Paul made this point already in verse 21 of chapter 1 when he says, Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. So the inherent, inevitable awareness of God that every image bearer of God has is suppressed, it's stifled by those who are determined to go on living as slaves to sin. God is not in all their thoughts. Any thoughts they may have about God are inadequate, therefore are wrong. We see God rebuking this way of living and thinking in Psalm number 51, verse 21, when he says to his people, oh, you take my name upon your lips, but you live contrary to my commandments. Why? Because you thought I was altogether like you are. They de-God God. They make God in their own image. This has been going on since the fall of Adam into sin. It continues on today. There's no fear of God before their eyes. It means that they do not respond properly to God as God. How should we respond to the true God? Jesus told his disciples, don't fear those who can kill your body. Rather, fear the one who can destroy both your body and your soul in hell. Jesus tells us to fear the God who has created us. The God to whom we're all accountable. The God before whom one day we will all stand to give an account of our lives. Fear him. Fear him. I wonder, how much fear of God is there in this room right now? Do you ever stop and think about the fact that the God with whom we all have to do is the God who has the very authority Jesus described to not only kill you physically, but to send your soul to hell eternally? Do you fear him? If you're outside of Christ today, if you're not depending on Jesus Christ as your righteousness to make you right with God, friend, the most sane, the most rational, the best possible attitude toward God you could have is to be terrified. 
because you're breathing his air. You're enjoying the health he gives you. You're taking advantage of all the good things that he's provided in your life while rejecting him. And one day you're going to give an account. One day you will be called to stand before him. And the only thing that stands between you and or between your eternal destiny in hell and this God, the only thing that's keeping you out of hell right now is his grace, his mercy, his patience. If a person saw that and believed that, how could he not be fearful toward God? Paul says, the root of all the sinful condition of mankind and conduct of mankind in sin is a lack of fearing God. Now, brothers and sisters, we also ought to fear the Lord. But our fearing the Lord is different in character to the fear that unbelievers who are still in their sin should have toward God. They are unreconciled to him. But through Jesus Christ, as we've turned from sin and trusted Christ, we have been reconciled to God. God has adopted us into his family. He's called us his friends. He welcomes us. He forgives us. But we must never forget that the God who has forgiven us, who calls us his children, is the God who sends not just bodies, but souls to hell. And so we should never be trite about God. We should never be trivial in our thoughts about God. The author of Hebrews warns us in Hebrews 12, verses 28 through 29, he says that we should offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Worship with reverence and awe. Not with dread, not with terror, Because your sins have been completely removed from you. God has taken your sins and laid them upon Jesus Christ, his son. And Christ is satisfied for every last one of your sins. You're free. You will never go to hell. You'll never experience God's condemnation for your sin. But the God who's done all that for you is fearful. He's a consuming fire. And he ought to be worshipped with awe, with reverence, with a predisposition to offer up our lives to him, to submit to what he says, to live according to his will, because this God, this fearsome God, is now in Jesus Christ, our Father. He's the one who loves us. He's the one who is for us. He's the one who's done everything necessary to make us right with himself. Because we are under sin, our condition is enslaved. Our conduct is bad. And the cause of all this is a lack of fear of God. In verses 19 and 20, Paul completes this line of argumentation by summarizing the consequences of all of our sin. The consequences of this reality. And the consequence is that we're left hopeless and helpless before God. Look at verse 19. Paul summarizes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. 
whether that law speaks from Scripture having been written and you have access to that and can read it, or whether that law speaks to you from your conscience on which it is written because you are an image bearer of God. That same law reveals the truth about God and it reveals the truth about yourself. And it speaks of the consequence of rejecting that truth. He says, every mouth should be stopped. That's the point. That's the purpose. That every mouth would be stopped. No more arguments or excuses offered to God. Nothing left to be said. In in these verses, Paul has in, in mind here a scene from the courtroom. And it's as if he perceives himself and using the law of God as the prosecuting attorney. This prosecuting attorney has built his case. He's marshaled all of the evidence that is irrefutable. And now he's come to his closing arguments. And he's made his closing arguments. And he has been accurate. He has been precise. He has been truthful and forceful. So much so that the defendant can only sit down and be quiet. Nothing to be said in his defense. Has to put his hand over his mouth. Your Honor, I have nothing to say. Why? Because the case is so clear and so forceful, so overwhelmingly convincing. Paul says that's the purpose of the law. We see that in the light of God's law, our conduct, our condition, our actions have been fairly and accurately described. And there's nothing we can do. Have you ever seen yourself in God's courtroom? Have you ever tried to imagine what that would be like? To be there with the law of God being brought out and your life being evaluated in the light of that law. Have you ever tried to have that idea? You'd have to agree. What God says about you is true. Maybe with shame, sorrow certainly, with brokenness, with an awareness, you have no argument. There's no defense. All of your little extenuating circumstances suddenly sound foolish. You wouldn't even utter them. All of the claims that you've used to justify your sin in your lifetime, you know they shouldn't even be breathed out loud. And you find yourself there condemned, without hope, without help. What are you going to do? The only thing you can do. You throw yourself at the mercy of the judge. You look for mercy. You plead for grace. And you do so knowing that the God against whom you have sinned is full of mercy and grace. He delights to show mercy. Which is exactly why he sent his son into the world for sinners like you and me. So you go and you sue him for mercy on the basis of what Jesus has done. You say, oh God, your word says that you sent your son into the world to do everything that I should have done, that I haven't done. 
and then he took upon himself all of the punishment for the sins that I've done, sins that I should pay for. And I plead with you for his sake, receive me, accept me, forgive me. And God delights to forgive, receive, and show mercy to sinners who come to him in Christ. Every mouth is silenced when God's commandments are seen for what they are. The whole world, Paul goes on to say, is held accountable to God. Along with silence before him and his charges against us is the awareness that we all are accountable to him. That word accountable is found only here in all of the New Testament. It's a legal term. It means liable to punishment. And so some English translations render it guilty. That's the true condition of the whole world before God. Because of sin, we're all guilty. We're all without excuse. We're all liable for our sin and its consequences. We all are accountable to God against whom we have sinned. That's the truth. That's what God says about everybody. Everybody you know, Christian, your unconverted children and friends and co-workers and neighbors are accountable to God. And unless they turn from sin as you have and entrust themselves to Christ as you have, then they will be eternally condemned by this God because they have rebelled against Him. In verse 20, Paul summarizes it. He says, Nobody can be justified by works of the law. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. To be justly measured by God's law is to be forced to admit that you do not measure up. That you cannot do what he requires. No sinner left to himself can in any way do anything that will make himself appear just in God's sight. In other words, whatever righteousness that you think you can attain to by your best efforts cannot justify you before God. Isaiah taught this in Isaiah 64 verse 6 when he says, We all have become like one who is unclean. All our unrighteous deeds are like a polluted garment. He's talking about people in their sin. People outside of the saving provision that God has made in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is why we teach our children in their children's catechism to think about this rightly. We ask, can anyone be saved by his own righteousness? Kids, you know the answer to this, right? Can anyone be saved by his own righteousness? No. No one is good enough for God, right? It's why we need a Savior. We need somebody who can come and earn the righteousness that God requires of us so that that righteousness might be given to us. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ has done. God's law was given to sinners not so that we can be declared righteous in His courtroom by trying to keep it, but God's law was given to sinners so that we will come to see our sin and recognize our need for a Savior. And if you've seen your sin and you've come clean about the futility of ever trying to make yourself good enough for God, then believe this, there's a Savior for sinners. 
Jesus Christ has come to seek and to save that which was lost. He came to save sinners, even the worst of sinners. And so this morning, if you're looking at this passage and you're feeling guilt over your sin, turn from your sin and trust Christ. If you are trusting Christ, brothers and sisters, remember what you once were. Remember where we would be apart from Christ. And praise God for His grace. Grace that would send His own Son for the likes of us. When you come to see your sin the way that God sees your sin, then you will realize that the righteousness you need is the righteousness that you cannot supply. And your only hope is the mercy of your heavenly Father, whom the Bible says is full of mercy, who delights in mercy, who shows mercy, who gives mercy in Christ. Your resume, the one that God's written for you, disqualifies you from ever being justified before God by your own efforts. You cannot do it. No matter how good you might think you are, no matter how many promises you make to be better, you cannot be religious enough for God. You cannot be good enough for God. But I do have good news for you. Your resume that God has written about you fully qualifies you to be justified by His grace. Because the only people that God saves are sinners. And the only people who are sinners that seek to be saved by God's grace are those who know themselves to be sinners. So I would plead with you today, if you've never trusted Christ, to admit what God says is true and to agree with Him, to quit arguing, to say yes What this passage says about me is true. And as you confess your sin, look to God and ask Him for Christ's sake to receive you, to save you, to cleanse you from your sin, to turn you away from the path you've been living on, to reconcile you to Himself, and He will save you. Brothers and sisters, isn't this amazing? It's good for us to remember what we once were. It's good for us to stop and think about the path we were on, how we were hell-bent going against God. When He, in His love and kindness, stopped us, convicted us of sin, and saved us. That ought to make us the most joy-filled people in the world. It ought to make us people that are so stunned and amazed that God would love us given our resume what we once were that we would do all that we can to make that truth of His forgiveness and grace in Christ known to others. It ought to make us sing. It ought to make us praise. It ought to make us worship. Because God has not dealt with us as we deserve. Rather, He's taken our resume and He substituted the resume of His Son. And He looks at us and sees us in Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this incredible grace. When we look at what your word says about our sin, we think about our lostness, how far away from you many of us once were, some in this room still are, 
It's astounding that you have been patient and merciful and gracious to sinners. I pray that you would stir up gratitude and praise and worship on behalf of your people as we contemplate this truth and that you would create faith and grant forgiveness in those who still are enslaved to sin this morning. Reveal Christ. Do it for your own sake. Do it so that glory will come to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.